It's your podcast coordinator, John. I hope you're having a good summer. So this is the final installment in the What is Catholicism series. And in this episode, Father Branson will he'll basically talk about how we can meet Christ today uh, through the church's sacraments and through community with others in the body of Christ. The talk itself is about 50 minutes and it's followed by an extensive Q&A. But it's chocked full of good stuff, and I definitely recommend listening to it. If I find the supplemental document, I will put it in the episode description. So be sure to check that out, too. We should have all the, all the relevant quotes and some reading material as well. So check that out. And yeah, enjoy. Okay, so this is the, like, third part of the, like, What is Catholicism series. And if you remember the first night we talked about uh, faith as a genuine method and form of knowing that we use in everyday life, and that it actually is a method that needs to be applied correctly. Um, That's a genuine form of, of knowing. And part of the, like, problem of the modern world is what we would call a lived contradiction, where people use the method of faith, knowledge through a witness or mediated knowledge in everyday life, but they don't include it in their intellectual system. And then we talked about the religious sense and the sense of mystery and all of life, reality as a sign pointing to a deeper reality, and that the most human action in front of that is actually a like begging for whatever like the mystery is to reveal itself to us. Then we talked about like there is this strange group of people through history that claim that the mystery revealed itself and revealed itself in a definitive way, in an eminently beautiful way in the sense of becoming man in the person of Jesus, um, that he is like God's companionship with man uh, and that like he re- reveals who God is, like who the mystery is through his humanity. He who has seen me has seen the father. The father and I are one. Uh, before he- Abraham was, I am. And we talked about what the experience was of the apostles and this slow certainty they had, a moral certainty over time in like who Jesus is um, that ended in his death and resurrection. So then the question of today, the like really crucial point is, all right, like if Jesus is who he says he is, right? And not only that, but makes this promise of behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If that's his claim, then the question dramatically becomes, okay, how can I meet him today? And how can I verify what he said today on a different continent 2,000 years later? That's the question. So Jusani puts it this way. He says, how can those who encounter Jesus Christ a day, a month, a hundred, a thousand, or 2,000 years after his disappearance from earthly horizons be enabled to realize that he corresponds to the truth which he claims? In other words, how does one come to see whether Jesus of Nazareth is or is not, in a strict sense, that event that incarnates the hypothesis of revelation? The problem is the heart of what history is always called church. Dostoevsky actually put it in a really dramatic way. He said, like, this is the question. Can a modern man, like, truly believe in the divinity of Jesus? Can a modern man, a cultured European, truly believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ? Um, I said that one just for you to watch. Thank you. I was thinking of that line. So, like, that, that's the question, right? And what is kind of offered is that as the question of, like, all right, if Jesus is who he says he is, how can we, like, verify or know that? 
there are like three possible approaches to this question or three different like positions and we're going to get into each of them right and just to note that these approaches aren't just historical but they're actually existential like this is how people approach the jesus problem today and so the first one is what we would call like the rationalistic position and this basically says jesus is a historical figure just like any other historical figure Therefore, like the best thing that I can do is study all of the documents and sources that, every, that came out of that, and that, that's the best that I can do. Just like I would with Caesar, like trying to figure out who Homer is, was Shakespeare real, blah, 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 right? You just look at all of the historical data and gather that together. That's kind of the rationalistic perspective. It's good, and it's positive in a sense of recognizing Jesus as a historical entity that has a real historic effect. One of the difficulties that we have with it is from the beginning, it denies the the proposal that Jesus makes that he can be experienced today. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Like he makes that claim that he can actually be encountered after his resurrection and ascension to the father. So the claim almost denies it from the outset. It's a position of like, all right, I'm going to hear what you have to say, but I'm not going to take any of it at all at your word like i don't believe any of it because i know you're a liar right or i know like you're intellectually compromised so nothing that you say can be true it kind of denies the possibility from the outset so and this is what science says he says to approach such a message with what we have called a rationalistic attitude would mean emptying the christian message of its content it would be just like saying to verify if jesus christ really is god present with us the method is to cast him back into the distance as distant as the divine was before making himself man, to cast him back into a state of absence from the present. In this way, the terms in which the problem is posed fall away. So examples of this is actually like, um, oh, uh, Schneckenberg, is that his name? Boltman, Rudolf Boltman, uh, with like, like historical, historic Jesus. Another one is Albert Schweitzer, who like really struggled with the questions of these. Actually, Thomas Jefferson, how many people, just out of curiosity, have ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Okay. Jefferson was basically like, it's super clear what's real and what was like made up later on by the apostles or people later. And you can tell those sections, so get rid of them. So he actually literally cut sections out of his Bible. And he cut out almost all of the miracles. He kept most of Mark. He got rid of John entirely, right? But he was like, you can tell very clearly what's real and what's not if you look at it. And he just like scissored through. The funny thing is, is that everyone that like kind of addresses the Jesus problem kind of in this way, and you can read the history of it. Um, Albert Schweitzer actually wrote like a really fascinating thing on the history of like the scholarship of Jesus, of trying to understand the like purely historical Jesus and how everyone actually, instead of making things clear, everyone actually ends up disagreeing with each other and it becomes muddier and muddier. And in fact, there's what I think is almost like a funny thing of uh, a group of like biblical scholars that all got together and they took like all of the like verses of the, of the gospels and they like voted on whether or not they thought it was actually accurate or happened. And then they would take the ones that like everyone kind of agreed on and be like, this is it, uh, which is, kind of wild when you think about it but you see that like the purely historical thing actually brings up more questions than answers and leaves us in front of a really difficult problem so that's the rationalistic the second one is what we would call the inner enlightenment position or the subjectivist position and the inner enlightenment position is basically this thing of like 
um, like God can do all things with God, like anything is possible. And therefore, like I can meet God in my heart and like God like comes and enters into my heart. And it's this like deeply interior dimension, which is like deeply religious and it re- respects that deeper uh, reality. This is what science says about it. He says like the, of the like inner enlight is the spirit of God itself, which enlightens the heart and inspiring it makes one feel the truth of the person of Jesus. It is recognition by means of an inner experience. This describes the fulcrum of the Protestant attitude. Through contact with the book, the Bible, which God wanted man to write as a reminder of his relationships with him, or through fragments generated by history or faith, or spurred on by the accents of a certain tradition or an evocation in the here and now, man's heart comes alive and understands what is right and what is not right with regard to Jesus. Therefore, to reach that distant Christ, that fact which the great theologian Karl Karl Barth called contact by tangent, the quick, immeasurable, unimaginable entrance of God in man's history on earth, the Protestant method uses an interior direct relationship with the spirit, an interior encounter. So what we talk about with correspondence or this experience of like an interior movement, right, which is a real experience, a real reality, is like the emphasis of it, right? That through contact with like the word of God in, in whatever form, like one is interiorly enlightened. This is what Jasani says though. So it, like there's a positive sense, which is the opposite of the rationalistic of recognizing the spiritual real dimension and the fact that it can enter into my being, right? But this is what he says. The real objection to this attitude is that it does not respect the facts of the Christian, Christian message, the, its original connotations. We would say the method. One who is divine became man, a man who ate, drank, slept, a man who one could meet on the street, a person one could encounter by stepping out the door of one's house in the middle of a small group of others while talking, and his words struck one's soul. What he said changed people within, but they were words that came from without. That is to say, the Christian message is a wholly human fact according to all the factors of human reality factors interior and exterior, subjective and and objective. The Protestant attitude annuls this wholeness, reducing the Christian experience to a merely interior experience. And in process assumes an a priori position to which it has no right. So he's saying like with deep respect that one of the difficulties of this is it becomes a purely interior position and it loses the objectivity of the experience of the apostles and the apostles knew whether or not they were following Christ by whether or not they actually followed him, a real man in front of them, and that it was exterior words that brought an interior change of heart, right? And now it's shifted from that to something purely interior. And, and like an experience, then that's like one of the difficulties of this position, right? Is it changes the method. Not that the religious experience isn't real, it's real, but it actually requires uh, a objective human voice that speaks the word like an objective presence. Uh, Farther down, uh, you'll see this line from Hans Urs von Balthasar. He says, if the mystical body is not pure metaphor, if this communion of the saints is truly incarnate, if also this body is distinct from every other body because it is the body of Christ, if these two conditions merge, then we should be able to touch this body, just as people were able to touch Christ in the flesh. So you can't go from like the real fleshiness of the person to Jesus to something that is a pure interior experience, 
that's a movement away from like what he actually did in communicating himself. And again, it makes him less clear and less objective, which the whole mission of Christ is to reveal in a real objective, tangible, experienceable way who God is. This is the third position, which we would call the Catholic or Orthodox position. And like there's, there's a bunch of scripture verses here kind of getting at this. One is like the healing of the paralytic. Uh, and this is just like an important thing in the sense of Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven, the paralytic. And the people are scandalized by this. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's their objection, right? And then he says, Jesus says, why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your pallet and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out before them all. And so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So you see the miracle of the healing of the paralytic is actually meant to be a sign to show that he actually has the authority to forgive sins. It's a clear, tangible action to show this interior reality. Uh, And it tethers it in a way. And then after the resurrection, Jesus says, this is John chapter 20, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had shown them this, his hands and his side, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So he literally does this physical action of breathing on them and says, receive the spirit who sends you as the father has sent me, so I send you. And now through their tangible flesh, these same signs and actions happen, right? Uh, To go down, it says, um, they are God's people, however, and they prolong the Lord's presence in the world insofar as they are his mystical body insofar as they are part of Christ's personality, his body, to use St. Paul's expression. And it is for this reason that the crucial problem of the church as the continuity of Christ cannot be grasped unless it is seen as analogous to the problem of Christ himself. The church is the method Christ uses for self-communication in time and space, just as the Christ is the method of God felt he should use to communicate himself to men and so establish their means of salvation. So just as Jesus said, uh, like, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He says, like, as the Father sent me, so I sent you. So now we say that the church is the body of Christ, right? That expands through space and time. And just as, like, a physical body, like, your body has, like, distinct parts, but it has one unifying thing, like the philosophical notion of the soul or the spirit, right? Spirit in uh, Hebrew is Ruah, which means breath, right? The unifying principle. When you die, your body literally comes apart, right? You uh, deteriorate. What's the word? Um, decompose. decompose. You decompose. Yeah, that's beautiful, right? Like composing, like there's a unified whole. You decompose. You come apart, right? Your body comes apart when you're like no longer able to breathe, when there is no longer a unifying principle that keeps you together, So the proclamation is that you encounter the real Christ in a real objective way 
in the unified like river of humanity of men and women that live this unity that receive the gift of the spirit right and the spirit is what animates it and keeps it together and this is just as mysterious as encountering like who god is through the body of christ 2000 years ago as it is today we would say the instrument of the divine is the human or the way that god communicates himself now is through the human Jesus Christ, like fully God and fully man, and now the church as the body of Christ brought together in an unimaginable experience of unity through the gift of the Spirit. That is like at the heart of it. This comes together in a dramatic way in the experience of the Acts of the Apostles with Saul, who's been like hunting Christians. And when he has his conversion moment, the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, sir? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And then this is what Jasani says in his book, The Journey to Truth is an Experience. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Indicates that he and I are one, identified together. We have become one. The me reveals that Christians and Christ himself are the same thing. Some years later, St. Paul wrote down what he had understood from that moment, that Christians and Christ are one. Those who have been taken hold of by the action of baptism have become one with, uh, have entered Christ and have become one with him. You who have been baptized in Christ have become one with Christ. So there is no longer any difference. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, the great cultural difference at the time. No slave nor freeman, the great social divide. No man nor woman, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one, uh, is, is the word. A single being, one in Christ Jesus. This is the unity that that man who had fallen down on the Damascus road discovered confusedly when he heard among himself ask, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Unity with Christ means the unity amongst Christians. Thus, a short time later, St. Paul was able to observe, we who share in the one bread are one. We are one in the ontological sense of the word, so much so that each of us is a member of the same body. So, the like... Now, the like, way that the person, whoever encounters the real Christ is through the real mystery of the church, like this river of humanity that extends outward through space and time. Four, like we would call them like fruits of this experience or like what we would call marks of the church. And you hear this in the Apostles' Creed, right? The first one, an experience of unity joined together uh, in a mysterious way. We're going to talk about more about that later on and about what we mean by the word communion. But this experience of unity, right? And a unity that crossed all the boundaries. Before, with the Jewish people, they were a specific ethnic group, right? But now this unity jumps past that specific ethnic group and it goes beyond to something more, right? Even the experience of uh, in Acts 9 with um, the, the Ethiopian and Philip, one of the beautiful moments is Philip hears the Ethiopian reading aloud uh, because that was what you did at the time. You read aloud. You never read silently. If you were reading, you would like say the words aloud. But this is an aside. I bring this up every time, but I think it's funny. One of the first people historically that we know read silently was St. Ambrose, and it freaked people out that he could read silently. This is a common thing for us today, but everybody literally read aloud when you were reading something. Freaked people out that he could read silently. Um, But he hears the Ethiopian just reading the prophet Isaiah, 
And he asks, Philip asks him, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian says very beautifully, how can I understand unless someone instructs me, unless someone walks with me, right? Almost the way that like Christ walked with the apostles. So it says Philip got alongside him in his chariot and instructed him, right? The need for like someone to walk with you, the need for like the community. So an impossible experience of unity, right? Um, And this is like experienced today. I have a very distinct memory of like visiting a woman from Tanzania uh, who was here, who was dying. And uh, I like heard her confession through a translator and we just sat and like prayed together and talked through. And I like, we both felt such a closeness to each other. And this was an older woman from Tanzania who lived a really, really rough life, so different from my life. And this like profound experience of unity that crossed gender, ethnicity, age, like all of these things, this discovery in a deep way that like you and I belong to the same thing, right? That's the first thing is an experience of unity. The church is one, right? The second thing is holy. Holy meaning set aside or bearing a divine reality, that there is something there greater than its parts, right? That there is something there that is like more beautiful than you can imagine. If you've ever had the experience of reading a book Uh, Like the first time you read a really, really good book and you get so hyped, like I didn't realize a book could be this good or I didn't realize so much could be contained in so little, right? Or like if there's ever been a a poem that's really like knocked you down where I was like, how could you say, or a song, like how could you say so much with so little? There is something being born here that is so much greater than what actually makes up the parts, right? This experience of being holy. Uh, Catholic, which actually means universal, meaning it's for everyone, like the universal church. It's for everyone transcending all ethnic and cultural dimensions. And in fact, that this actually adds a missionary impetus in the sense of going out, like seeking like others to like bear this reality too. And that this is meant to like take root in every culture and not to destroy the culture or do violence to the culture, but to actually bear a salvific reality to it. Uh, I was reading this one missionary talking about like the real method of mission work in the church and the authentic method of mission work has been to go to a culture and actually like conform oneself to that culture, learning the language, the culture and everything going on and actually seeing what is good within it and what is actually awaiting like the Christ, like the one that like is a, what aspect of it is actually waiting for fulfillment. What is like doing that? Um, yeah. And then, like, conforming oneself more deeply to the culture and then proclaiming Christ within that culture. And that part of this as well is actually meant to be, uh, like, purifying whatever in the culture is actually not good. So it's never meant to be destructive of a culture, but actually meant to be salvific in the sense of holding up what is actually good. Uh, apostolic in the sense of that can be traced back to the apostles. It bears a lived communication of tradition and even what we would call apostolic succession, which is the laying on of hands. So when I was ordained a priest, Archbishop uh, Wilton Daniel Gregory laid hands upon me. And when he was ordained a a priest, uh, I think it was Cardinal George that laid hands, or Cardinal Burdening that laid hands upon him and goes back all the way to the experience of the apostles. So when we talk about an unbroken line, we don't just mean of ideas, right? 
or of like kind of having the same general vibe, but a, a literal unbroken vibe in the or unbroken uh, <laughs> line in the sense of like laying hands and like a physical unity that goes through history. So just like uh, like my words are expressed through a real body, right? And like the ideas are articulated through a real bodiliness and it can't happen separate from that, right? The like reality of Christ can't be separated from this real lived unity and bodiliness. So those are like what we would call the four fruits or marks of the church. This is St. Irenaeus in his uh, work against heresies. And this is from 180 AD. He says, therefore, the tradition of the apostles manifest throughout the world may be seen in every church by anyone who wishes to see the truth. And we can list the bishops appointed by the apostles to the various churches, as well as their successors to this day. But since this exercise of listing the successions in all the churches would take too long, we will take the very great and very old church known to all, the church founded and established in Rome by the two glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. In fact, every church must be in accord with this particular church by virtue of its most excellent of origins. This church in which the tradition that comes from the apostles has always been preserved for all men. So you see here the idea of unity wasn't a vague general sense, but was actually like a real, a real reality. If you skip ahead, there's a part we talk about. Um, uh, this is Ludwig Herdling. Uh, it's in the, a ritual liturgy of the Mass. It said, when a Christian sets out on a journey, he received from his own bishop a letter of recommendation, a type of passport. And on the strength of this, he would be welcomed as a friend and accommodated free of charge in any Christian community he would visit. This institution, whose traces we can find as far back as apostolic times, was not just to the advantage of the laity, such as Christian traders, but to the bishops themselves. For at not much cost, they could send messengers and letters throughout the empire. These passports were called letters of peace or communion letters, since they certified that the traveler belonged to the communion and could therefore receive the Eucharist. So even today when we have like baptism, baptismal certificates, confirmation, like all of that, right, saying like this person is able to receive Eucharist, there it was to this even more expanded reality in the sense of hospitality of if you had like your passport from your bishop, you could stay free of charge and you would be taken in because you're the brother or sister in the Lord, right? But you see that that unity wasn't an idea, but it was like a real physical manifest thing. This comes to the point of... Uh, like the church as a concrete place in the sense of they, from the very beginning, it was a real place they gathered. People say very often, like the church is the people, it's not a place. And that's true, but people also need a place to live, right? If, it's, if, the, if, if Christ is embodied, whenever you marry someone, it's not like, hey, our love will sustain us. We're not going to buy a house, right? It's like, no, because we belong to each other, we actually need a house. We need a place to live. We need a place to gather. And as our tribe grows, right, like our house may even need to be expanded. And we need like John's room. We need like Katie's room. We need whatever, right? Like it expands. And so like this expansion of it actually includes real places like churches, right, and church buildings, which are a part of this embodied lived reality. Um, this is from the Acts of the Martyrs of Abilene. It has a, it has a couple different names. You can find it online actually. And it's like 49 Christians that were put on trial during the Diocletian persecution. But this is the part that always kills me. I said it at the teaching mass and I say it all the time, but it's just like, it like wounds me the beauty of it. 
Uh, so the proconsul says, it is indeed in your house that the gathering takes place, contrary to the decrees of the emperors, meaning the celebration of the liturgy, the mass. Because Emeritus says, it is in my house that we hold the assembly of the Lord. Assembly is ecclesia, the word, the word that we have for church. So it's like, yeah, we gather and we celebrate mass in, in my house. Why have you allowed them to enter there? Uh, Emeritus says, because they are my brothers and I was unable to forbid them. And Proconsul says, but you were supposed to have forbidden them. And he says, I could not do so because we cannot exist without the assembly of the Lord. He's like, we cannot exist without this. And he's like, I cannot forbid them from entering my house because like they are my brothers. Like these like rando people, whatever. And he like dies for this, right? Like this experience of a deeper love that transcends all of these things where he says like, I cannot forbid them. Like they are my brothers. And like, I cannot exist without them and without like what we do together. There's a long line for here from St. Justin Martyr, but I was just to like take home this like reality of like what the church lived at that time and how it like comes together. I want to say a few words about like part of the like, uh, we talk about like these new factors that emerge and the reality of the, the church as the revelation of the body of Christ. And one of them is like, it's a concrete place, right? They gather at Solomon's portico, they gather at particular places, right? Um, part of it too is uh, a new personality emerges in the, in the person. And in this new personality comes this understanding of communion, this understanding that like my I is incomplete without you. And I grow insofar as I am in relationship with you. The funny thing about this is this actually makes sense on the natural physiological level in the sense of like all of us in our mother's womb only grew in relationship with our mother, right? That literal connection of the umbilical cord, right? We only grew in relationship with her, right? And even babies, right? Like they actually need physical touch. Like they actually need touch in order to like authentically grow. All of our acquisition of language, social, and everything is in relationship. We actually only grow in relationship. And so if you think about it in the modern world, it's so crazy that our ideal is like the self-made independent man when all of reality actually screams that we are made for relationship and we actually only flourish and are fulfilled in relationship. So this thing that we experience actually on like a physiological level from birth on, right, of only authentically growing in relationship takes a deep, mature understanding in the understanding of communion, in this reality of communion that like I actually receive, I am part of the body of Christ and I receive Christ in communion from that experience of the Last Supper and this liturgy that expands. And in that I grow more in belonging to a people. And that my I is actually incomplete without this you that is the Christian people, right? Um, this takes a few things. One, hospitality in a practical sense, right? That like we are meant to actually make space for others. We talked about it, the Christians taking in each other, right? Uh, St. Justin Martyr talks about it in his Apologia. And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the president uh, the presider who suckers the orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us and in a word take care of all who are in need right so hospitality like communion you belong to me you're part of the family 
What is mine is yours. They lived everything in common. Second thing is actually there is an institutional element. To be together actually requires by its very nature organization. I think about this like living here on campus because even the wildest fraternity has a charter and has some organization and some structure in order for them to survive. Like you actually need, in order for people to authentically live together, just like a body has a structure and like has a skeleton that like everything kind of hangs on, like the, a real body actually needs structure. So there is a institutional element to it. Even in the sense of like, when you live in family, you actually need some structure, right? We all experienced this in a practical way during COVID of people saying like, for the sake of mental health, if you're gonna survive this pandemic, you actually need good structure. And we need to live together as much as is possible and is healthy, right? That's a, so there's this institutional reality. This is a line from the letter of St. Ignatius to the Philadelphians. Take care therefore to participate in the one Eucharist for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, one cup that leads to unity through his blood. There is one altar just as there is one bishop together with the council of presbyters and the deacons, my fellow servants. In order that whatever you do, you do in accordance with God. Um, which includes the fourth aspect, of which is the hierarchical factor, a point of unity, like the real point of unity. And you see that in the Acts of the Apostles with Peter as the point of reference. Even John doesn't enter the tomb until Peter does first. And in Acts of the Apostles and the gift of the Spirit, Peter is the one who speaks. When Paul defends his credentials as an apostle, he says very explicitly, I went to be and sit at the feet of the apostles, and I got the hand clasp of friendship from Peter and James. Um, a missionary ideal in the sense of a desire for others to enter into communion, that they can belong to what I belong to. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, like, go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Introduce them into what you are living, like the mystery made flesh. Uh, morality is the dynamism of a journey. And this is St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the experience of morality is actually one of development. You grow in this, right? We think of morality as like just doing everything right perfectly from the get-go, but morality is actually something we grow in and are educated in. It's a dynamic journey, right? And the way kids actually learn is they like make lots of mistakes, right? And you have to be like, you know, it's good to like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's good to go to the bathroom, right, on your own, but like maybe like aim better next time, right? Like you have, things have to be like gently corrected. So it's kind of a crass example, but it was the first thing came to mind. It's thinking of my nieces and nephews. Uh, so like there, there's this dynamic of education. You can even see like the church theology and church history. And this is why church history as memory is so important is you recognize this maturity and develop. So like the iconoclast controversy, which was like uh, images, like any sort of image of Jesus is actually idolatry, right? And so get rid of them, right? Like that's not a thing. And the church actually had to wrestle with this and deal with this and basically be like, no, like 
Actually, it's not. It's, it can become that, and that's not good, but it's meant to be an image that helps you. Like, we're visual people. We actually need art. Today, in a practical way, we have pictures of our family, and we don't consider that the same thing as our family. Like We know it's a reminder of your family on like a practical human level. But the church actually had to wrestle with this and struggle with it. So you can see the like dynamism of morality that happens in the apostles living with Jesus over time. That's why we said the problem of the church is connected to the problem of Jesus, and you can't separate those. Uh, like the, the way of verification is the same, right? Um, last thing with this is we talked about like the problem of verification. Like how can I actually know whether or not this is true? And again, if the problem of verification is the same in the church as it is in Jesus, this is why we talk so much about the experience of the apostles. How did the apostles experience this? How did they verify it? We talked about from the very beginning, Gospel of John chapter 1, it was come and see, come and live with me, right? And then you will like grow in certainty over time. So it's not purely intellectual, it's at the level of existential, right? Nobody, hopefully, nobody is like, I'm going to figure out whether or not like, I can marry this woman by thinking about it from a distance and just intellectually thinking about it and then walking up and being like, hey, let's get married. That's not what this is, right? You actually start with like, hey, like, can we get coffee? Can we go on a date, right? Certainty slowly over time. And over time, it's like, yes, like I'm called to marry this person. But you can't do that in a purely intellectual way of I'm going to like study everything about this woman. This algorithm gives me the perfect things of her qualities. Therefore, like we can be married. That's not what this is. I know there's dating shows about this and everything. All of that is like the human effort to go around these things. What is it? 90 Day Fiance? Uh, so you've seen it. <laughs> I, no, I haven't. <laughs> One of my like... Listen, one of my guilty pleasures is just keeping up with movie and TV news. There's a great, there's, I, there's this website I really like called Screen Rant. And I, so I just like pay attention to their articles every now and then. So I know of 90 Day Fiance and all of these things. Because they'll be like, how so-and-so are doing after 120 days. And it's like, all right, this is clickbait. The point though is that what we talked about of like faith as a form of knowing is it requires a moral certainty that involves yourself. I can't know whether or not I'm good at skiing unless I go and ski and try it. I can't try and figure that out from a distance, right? Like I actually have to engage myself. I have to risk on it. And we said the ones who had certainty about Jesus were the apostles because they shared life with him. They lived with him. And the Pharisees are the ones that had an improper judgment because they interpreted everything that he said in the worst possible way and they were looking for a reason to bag on him and they didn't share life with him, right? Uh, Giussani gives this example of, let's say you have an Italian man who comes to America and falls in love with a Japanese woman and they start writing like poetry to each other and he learns like some things of Japanese poetry. The mother sees the poetry and she's like, what the heck is this, right? And the question is, like, who has the more, like, objective understanding of what's going on? Some would say the mother because she's an outside party. So she's, like, unbiased. But she actually doesn't understand Japanese poetry, right? Or their relationship. So it's actually the son that has the better understanding of what's going on in the letters because they've shared life together. So Jasani says, he says, so all of this happens through a, like, we verify by living it, by come and see, 
which is what Jesus said at the very beginning of John 1. It's always been come and see. And in Acts of the Apostles, right, like the ones that like they always knew where the apostles were. They gathered at Solomon's portico, right? But it always required a like sharing life with them. It can't be separated from life. The, the Ethiopian saying to Philip, how can I understand unless someone instructs me, unless someone stays with me, right? And Philip gets in the chariot with him, right? We can't get rid of the bodiliness of the church, just like you can't get rid of the bodiliness of Jesus. This is the way he has chosen to communicate himself. One of the things that Jesus says, and like what they experienced is the apostles were in wonder and awe amazed, and said, like, we have left everything to follow you. When Jesus, like when the rich young man goes away sad, uh, Peter's like, we've left everything to follow you, almost like what's in it for us. And Jesus promises, he's like, I promise you, like, uh, like not just father, like those who leave fathers, sister, mothers, households will receive the hundredfold, hundredfold of fathers, sisters, mothers, brothers, uh, households with persecutions and eternal life to come. He doesn't just say, hey, like the way, what, like Christianity is like, you, you embrace the cross, life sucks. And then you die and go to heaven. That's pretty great. So like suffer for the pie in the sky. Like he actually promises, he says the hundredfold and then eternal life to come. So one of the ways that we verify is, is this a deeper experience of life? Does this make me more human or less? Does this make me more alive? Does this exalt my humanity? Is it a deeper depth of experience? That's the like thing of verification. Sonny says, not only is the criterion of verification through experience to which the church wants to submit itself, come and see for yourself. Jesus is saying, like, do you also want to leave to Peter? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? Like, you have the words of everlasting life. We've come to believe that you are the Messiah. Uh, the church wants to submit itself, that of man's original experience, adulterated as little as possible by the false needs induced by the social context. The church repeats with Jesus that it can be recognized as credible, because of its correspondence to man's elementary needs and their most authentic flourishing. This is what Jesus meant by the expression we have already cited, by that promise to his disciples of a hundredfold on this earth. And it is as if the church is also telling man, with me an experience of fullness of life that you will not find elsewhere will be yours. It is on the razor edge of this promise that the church puts itself to the test, proposing itself to all men as the prolongation of Christ. One of my... Uh, friends was telling me of a priest in Italy where this person came into him and was like, I'm leaving like the movement. I'm leaving the church. Like I'm leaving all of this. And the priest was like, go. But if you find anybody that takes life more seriously than we do, come and get me and I will go with you. He's like, if you find anybody that takes like life more seriously or lives with a greater depth of intensity and awareness, come and get me because like, I want to be there. Like I want to be the, in the place where people are most like alive in front of life and live a depth of experience. The next quote, though, is recognizing there's a beautiful section in there of um, the two factors in the church of the like human reality of it and the, that it bears a divine reality. And part of the thing of the human reality is if this is God's method through humanity, it now includes like man's fragility in the sense of the bearer of Christ can be a real dirt bag and do terrible things, right? And that he actually allows himself, uh, like he allows himself to be communicated even through like the weakness and fragility of man. You see this even in, in the gospels, right, of uh, the apostles like messing up or like 
doing some like not the best things or Peter like denying Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say like, hey, you're out or anything like that. He says, Peter, do you love me? Like there is something in here of the reality that like God risks himself on man's humanity and like bets on that. And that this is a terrifying risk. And this actually scandalizes us because many people have had like pretty bad experiences of people of faith, right? That like turns them off to the whole thing. And so much of people's actual rejection of Christ or the church, institutional or otherwise, is because of man's fragility. People not really living the life, people being hypocritical, people not taking seriously the intellectual reality of it, people, whatever, right? People not like living seriously the intellect where it's like just believe or whatever, right? The fragility becomes an objection. What Jasani proposes and what I would say is actually true is uh, you wouldn't write off the beauty of the piano by a terrible piano player, right? Someone playing the piano badly, like me sitting there jangling the keys, you wouldn't be like, this is so, maybe, you'd be, this is so bad, I'm gonna destroy the piano and all pianos and never listen to piano music again. No, no, no. The question would be like by the expert, right? The person who sits down like the best pianist in the world playing the most beautiful piece, that's how you test whether or not it's a beautiful instrument, right? Not by the worst or the one who least corresponds, but by actually the one who is living it at the height. And is it, like that's actually how you verify it. This is what Jusani says very beautifully. He says, the unity of the church, it's propelling strength in regard to all men. It's innate need to be as effective as possible in bringing a unique message to mankind. All of these facets are helped by different temperaments, and even, as we have seen, plans which are in complete contrast, cultural imprints which highlight widely diverging perspectives of action. However, none of this can be either an objection to or reason for adhering to the church's message. We cannot dwell either on the magnetism of these great figures or on their limitations. We adhere to or reject something because of content, because of its truth in resolving a problem as it presents itself. If God has chosen to use men and women as instruments of his self-communication, then they are to be judged as such. To return to our metaphor, it is the responsibility of each one of us to desire the gold of the message. If one truly desires gold, then he is not scandalized at finding it in mud. He must dirty his hands and work hard to extract it. But if one does not want to get his hands dirty, then he is not at all that interested in the gold after all. He is more concerned about keeping his hands clean. So what he would say is that like the actual desire for like the gold, if there is something divine here, that enables me to not be scandalized by the mud and to actually like stay in it, right? And if I am like unwilling to do that, then like I'm not actually interested in the gold. I'm more interested in keeping my hands clean. I'm not interested in the messiness. And so we would actually say that like the problem of the church is actually this. From my own experience, I remember a very specific moment of like someone I was very close to whose brother uh, was a priest and like really like messy situation. And she was complaining to me and someone I know very well so I can speak very bluntly to. And she was like, it just is the same stuff again and again and again. And it's the same problems again and again and again and it doesn't change. And I was struck and me being like particularly blunt in that moment, I was like, yeah, but like, you keep doing the same sins again and again and again, and you keep going to confession again and again and again. The difference is, is that whenever you go, like God forgives you. 
like he has mercy on you and he keeps forgiving you. But what you're saying is, is it's the same problem again and again, therefore you condemn it, right? Your position is different than Christ's or the church's in front of you. The problem of the church is the problem of my humanity, right? And when we end up condemning the fragility of the church, at the end of the day, we actually end up condemning our own humanity because we too are fragile, right? So it actually becomes a condemnation of the church and of myself because the person striving to adhere discovers they can't. Like Peter saying, I'll never betray you. And then that night denying Jesus, right? There's a lot more that could be said about that. But I think that that point is crucial because particularly in Catholicism, we have lots of uninspiring examples, right? And lots of people that I've met of like former Catholics who uh, didn't experience someone like living it like intentionally, right? Um, This is a factor that we have to take into account. I like have lived these things too, but I can't deny in myself like the depth and the beauty that I have experienced and that there is this like mystery that comes through an extremely like human reality and that it's like deeper than like I could possibly imagine and like more beautiful than I could possibly imagine. Um, And that it actually makes like everything more beautiful and that it becomes like the place of growth and change. One last line and then space for questions. This is from Carl Adam, his work, The Spirit of Catholicism. But in talking about, because a lot of people are like, what you see of Christianity today is different from like the primitive church is what they would call it. And there's lots of things even in the modern world of kind of moving back to the like ancient church, like going back to like the way like Jesus did things or like the apostles did. And there is an understanding of like history or memory or the growth of the church. This is what Carl Adams says. We Catholics acknowledge readily without any shame, nay with pride, that Catholicism can't be identified simply and wholly with primitive Christianity, nor even with the gospel of Christ, in the same way that the great oak cannot be identified with the tiny acorn. There is no mechanical identity, but an organic identity. The church is a life. A baby grows up, and the little baby looks so different than the grown man, even though they may bear similar features, right? And the continual emergence of new forms. The gospel of Christ would have been no living gospel, and the seed would he scattered no living seed if it had remained ever the tiny seed of AD 33, and had not struck root, and had not assimilated foreign matter, and had not, by the help of this foreign matter, grown up into a tree, so that the birds of the air dwell in its branches. That's uh, Carl Adam. Okay. Uh, I recognize that this was a lot. This was more notes than we've ever had before. I couldn't cut any of this down, honestly. Uh, or like, I wouldn't. It's probably more accurate. <laughs> Questions? Or if something isn't clear? Yeah? I have a lot of things. I don't know if I'll remember them all. Okay. But, uh, so... First of all, what is the role of the Holy Spirit as you see it in like the Catholic Church? So the Spirit is the unifier, right? The Spirit of unity. It's actually just, again, like if the church is the body of Christ, right? Like a body has a unifying factor, the Spirit. So if you go to like the Gospel of John again, Jesus literally breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, Who sins you forgive are forgiven. Who sins you retain are retained, right? So the like, authority of Jesus happens through the spirit of Christ, which is like the Holy Spirit. So what keeps the church unified and what helps it to grow and what also corrects it 
is the Holy Spirit, which is living. And this happens like through the institutional reality, but through what we would also call like charismatic gifts connected to the institution. So I'll give you a tangible example. In the, what, 1100s, one of the greatest times of like corruption in the church, two great saints emerged to reform the church. St. Francis, whose feast day we celebrate today, Francis of Assisi, and St. Dominic. And they formed two orders, right? The Order of Preachers, uh, which St. Thomas Aquinas came out of, right? And the Franciscans, which St. Bonaventure came out of, two great theologians and philosophers, right? Uh, so there was a course correct that the Holy Spirit had happened through like these people that were part of the church, but generated something new that was part of the structure, but not necessarily intrinsic to it that grew upon it. And they lived in unity with that. So we would say that's like the movement of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit inspires, which is like breath, right? Like the Spirit inspires and leads and guides and moves to greater unity so if, and gives gifts. So do you say every Catholic possesses the Holy Spirit or is it only, so it's not only those with that like direct apostolic line? No, because that's for like the church as a whole. By right. virtue of baptism, right, they're part of the body of Christ. The, what we talk about with apostolic succession, and I should, this is a fair point, I should have been more clear. That is like what we would say, like in conformity with Christ the head, in the sense of the point of reference to like guide the whole body, right? Okay. That's, that's what that is specifically. So if, if the individual Catholic has the Holy Spirit, then I guess, and you mentioned the structure, like the skeleton and things like that. Yeah. But what is, is there like a role of a priest beyond just the leader of an individual church? Mm. Is there like something special about a priest that the individual Catholic doesn't have? Um, the author, like the spiritual authority for like dispensing of the sacraments. We would say that the roles of like the clergy are preaching, teaching, sanctifying. If you remember in Acts of the Apostles as well, whenever there's problems with the orphans and widows of the like uh, Greek community, the apostles are like we're devoted. We're devoted to teaching and preaching and the breaking of bread. We actually can't concern ourselves with this, but this is a real problem. So they gather, they pray and discern, and it's the calling of the seven deacons, right? So they're actually like, there's a specific task that we're called to, right? And we can't actually step away from that task. So now we have the deacons to assist us in that, which is what Justin Martyr talked about in that. So what we would say is that the mission of the church is to evangelize, right? And that actually happens primarily through the people of God, right? Baptized laity. That is their mission is to actually evangelize and to sanctify the whole world. To assist them in that is the priest who is the presider at worship, right? Who presides the assemblea, the ecclesia, the church, right? Leads worship, but everyone is an acting part of that, right? But like to help them out is actually the bishop of the local diocese, right? And then the Pope as the point of reference. So, and, uh, the bishop is meant to be, for the, like the lay people, the sign of the universal church. So he represents to us the greater, but the bishop is meant to represent to the rest of the world the particular church of us here in Atlanta. Uh, if you're interested more in this, like there's a really great short book, it's very short, by, called Called to Communion 
by uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. It's simple but brilliant, and he gets at a lot of these things. So yeah, like my specific role is preaching, teaching, sanctifying, but really my, my role is to serve this community and helping them to live their vocation. So the like call to serve is not a, an authoritarian sense, which it can be lived that way, but it's actually the, the call of Christ to be the first to give of oneself. So you mentioned that part of your role is dispense the sacraments. So like, for example, confession is mm-hmm. one of them, right? Um, yeah. So is it necessary to go through a priest to like properly confess your sins or like through the Holy Spirit can I not confess my sins directly in that way? Or like confess to, you know, another Christian that I'm friends with, something like that. So God can forgive sins however he wants. Yeah. He's God, right? The question though is, is if, if Christ is the method, right? The question is, is what is the method that God chooses to forgive us? That's why I picked those two verses of the healing of the paralytic where Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Who has that authority? Gives the sign. He says to the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit. Who sins you forgive are forgiven. Who sins you retain are retained. So he gives the specific authority to the apostles. He doesn't say, hey, everybody's sins are forgiven. Wazoo. Like, or like everybody can forgive sins. He gives the specific authority to the bishop, right? So God can forgive sins however he wants, but he has chosen this method, right? Um, The interesting question is, if this is the method he has chosen, why? Why would he do it this way, right? I would say a few things. One, uh, my sins are never my own, right? Our sins always have a communal dimension to them, right? And it always has a communal effect. Even in the sense of like, uh, if I'm looking, if I'm like, privately objectifying women in my mind that affects the way that I look at them and the way that I see them and then it affects how I treat them, right? And it builds a culture. So our sins are never private, right? If we're all trapped in here and there's one pizza and I eat the pizza because I'm hungry, that means y'all don't get pizza, right? If I lie to you, now there is a wall between us because you feel like that you can't trust me. So our sin can't just be with God and me because it has a communal dimension. Not only that, but if the church is the body of Christ, then I need to be reconciled with the real living body of Christ. The other part is a deeply human factor of, I can't tell you how many people feel like they aren't really forgiven. Like how many Christians I've met that are like, I know God forgives me, but I don't feel forgiven. And how actually psychologically healing it is to go to a place to say things aloud and to have a real person say, like, that's not who you are. I forgive you. I absolve you from your sins, right? So like that's, and this is how like the, it's kind of like developed over time. There's a whole history of reconciliation. Uh, but like, I think that the, like for us, if, if the, it's the problem of Christianity, the problem of Christ is also the problem of the church. If this is the method that he has chosen, then we need to be faithful to that. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I guess, like, I mean, okay, so there's a fine line between saying, like, Jesus can forgive, or God can forgive sins however he wants, but, but like, this is his singular chosen method for doing so. Mm-hmm. So, like, I guess in my mind it's, if this is the, the single chosen method, 
and then someone misses out on, on that specific method. They're missing out on a lot. Yeah, yeah. But are they missing out? Like, if but if they're not missing out entirely on the forgiveness of sins from God, then is that truly the singular method that that He chose? Does that make sense? Uh, no, I don't think I understand. Like, no, I, I get that. Like, there's the okay. So let's take like, the common example that you that I hear a lot is like the guy who was crucified beside Jesus. Yeah. Um, and this day you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, it's um, Jesus saying that to him. Right. So that's that's the big difference, right? But like, let's say someone on their deathbed or something like that, they might not be able to participate in like the sacraments in the way that the church does them most often. So is there not like a different method of forgiveness of sins if someone repents on their deathbed? If they are forgiven, they're forgiven because of Christ. And if they ask for forgiveness, like, yeah, right? Like, even it says in the catechism, right? If a Catholic is not able to go to confession uh, for whatever reason, then with sincere, like, contrition and saying an act of contrition, like, they are actually forgiven of their sins, but it's a logistical thing of God providing for them because they're like not able to go. But that doesn't mean that confession isn't the ordinary means of it. Right. And that also doesn't give us license to dodge that, to be like, therefore, I don't actually need it. Right. Yeah, that, that's like, I agree with, with that, like saying that there may be a best way of doing something. Um, but I guess like, I don't know, it, it's fine line between saying like this is the best way versus this is only way um, I mean this is how Jesus said it you know yeah. so I like I I, I would make I, I wouldn't agree with the like this is the best way I would say this is the ordinary means mm. and if God works through supernatural great yeah like the church has hope for those like what the church even says about those that are like unbaptized or whatever is that like those that are saved are saved because of Jesus Christ and we have hope for them right but they are saved through Jesus Christ, and the church is the body of Christ, right? But people take that to, like, universal salvation or, like, that there isn't a need to evangelize or whatever. But that's not what the church teaches. Yeah. I would say it's easier to turn to, like, believe in something when you yourself, like, actually do believe it's best. But just, like, it's easier for me to say, like, confession this way. It's, like, I only want it this way. Yeah, Alyssa. So the um, second part of that line, I was actually curious about what you were talking about. Um, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I'm wondering if that has something to do with like priests also doing penance after, like for those who do confessions, or if like, or if that's, or if there's a different meaning behind that. Mm. Yeah, that. Um, yeah, like we do do like penance for others, right? Um, there's a, a much bigger, greater complexity thing going on there that I, like, for the sake of time, I don't yeah, want to go into. So. Go ahead, Wes. Uh, first of all, thank you for these three weeks' lectures. It's been great knowing all of this. Um, I sort of have a two-part question. So what does it mean to be religious, and what does it mean to be religious in Catholic sense? Yeah. So yeah, no, absolutely. So the first, what Jusani would say is to be religious is to live the real intensely. To live the real intensely, right? That is what it means to be religious. Now, 
the modern world has this whole thing of like spiritual religious. Those are modern distinctions. They, they don't actually make a lot of sense. What they usually mean by that is like there are institutional people and people that feel it, right? And like it's just not help. I don't think that those are helpful categories at all. So religiosity to live the real intensely, right? And so what we would say of that is the like moment of beauty, right? Looking at the stars, uh, this like who are you that make me, right? My, I, I get like a very specific one of when my niece was born and I got up at like four in the morning with my brother for him to feed her, like with a bottle. Uh, and him looking at the face of his daughter and being like, like, what is your future? Like, what are you gonna be like? Like, what is your destiny, right? This like eternal question, right? This takes a form in like the tangibility of like the face of Christ, right? So for the Catholic to be like religious means uh, to live with this awareness of like his presence, that he is with us and to adhere to it. So it's to grow in knowing and loving, right? Awareness and adherence and that I am a part of this, right? And this actually leads to a greater depth in music, art, etc even to like the sanctification of one's work where to like study well is part of religiosity that doesn't mean i like throw religious terms into it but that i like i dive into it with all of myself that's what we would actually say so like the religious sense takes on a a personal dimension right and a personal dimension though that expands to include others like we said my i is incomplete without you so it's to be brought into like the unity of the Trinity. The ending of Dante's Paradiso where he says, and now the love that moves the sun and the stars is the same love that moves me. So he's like, I am united with God, with others and with all of creation. The same love that moves the suns and the stars is what moves me. that you make for like the sake of verification but how can you compare if you've never lived like like I've never tried Methodistism or Hinduism or so how can you make a comparison if you only like if you're born Catholic mm. yeah absolutely okay it's a good question I think that we live friendship with others and we see what they're living right that's the thing and see if there's a difference not in like a, not in like a stat comparison or like a jealousy thing or anything like that or like a one-upmanship and anything, but like in freedom, like living life with others and seeing what they live, right? Um, and seeing if either of us like sees like an authentic difference. Not just a little bit of it, it's a crucial part, yeah. right? But it, it's that the like inner reality requires an outer objective reality. I just question, like, can you, especially with like mental health, like, can you trust this like feeling aspect? I feel like that's a really big barrier for a lot of my friends. Yes, so uh, the thing about that is, is right, with that person, the way that they grow is in relationship with others, right? 
like someone who is trustworthy that's like, no, 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 like that's actually like not you, right? Or like that's not healthy or that's not helpful, right? You actually need an objective outside person to help you, right? Because sometimes like our friends can see like our level of exhaustion better than we can, or they can see our patterns better than we can. This is one of the most frustrating things, but beautiful things of living with someone for a really long time is they see your patterns and you don't see it, right? So this is why the like communal dimension of the faith is crucial to actually educate to that because we don't see that. And so I think particularly someone with mental illness, the only way they get, we talked about this before, the only way they get better is in relationship, right? There is an aspect of like learning to trust themselves and things like that, but that actually has to be educated, right? But they only learn in relationship, right? Does that make sense? So two things. One, this life, all of life is a huge risk, right? Like that, there's no getting around that, right? And we're not promised, like, safety in that regard. We're promised adventure, and we're promised, like, that, like, he will take care of us in the end, right? So it's like, if, if the goal is ultimately, like, a, a safety, uh, it's, you know, it's not it. Uh, the, it is a ship longing for the sea and yet afraid, right? Um, that's the first aspect. The second aspect of it is he really does give us real tools to help us in the sense of reason, like proper use of reason. Faith is a legitimate form of knowing, right? And the heart is a real instrument, right? So we are given help along the way. Uh, and then the like believing community. So we're given like a lot of supports and it's a risk, right? It's both of those. One last question, then we'll stop. Okay. I know you said you had more. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of what you said about like the communal aspect being essential um, is definitely true of the Protestant Church as well. Yeah. Um, like I think he, he said that it's like a merely interior experience when you're talking about Protestantism, mm-hmm. um, which like I mean. That's not, it's kind of like what we were saying earlier. You would say that's not the, like the desired way, like the appropriate way to live as a, as a Christian. Mm. Um, so I guess it's hard for me to make the leap in logic, or like follow the logic that like the Catholic tradition is the only lived communication of tradition, basically, back, mm. going back to the apostles, especially because like, so like the oak tree example where it starts as a seed back then um, and it grows into a tree nowadays yeah. you know like the different there could be a branch of that tree that's pretty far away from a different branch but they will come from the same seed yeah it's, it's the one tree right yeah. it's unified right yeah. but there was a real rupture that happened in like dogma like tradition right and like shared common life together and we can't like pretend that didn't happen, right? And so to the point where like, there was a, a big like rejection of tradition in the name of like kind of pure Christianity. And we're oversimplifying because there's a lot of things that happened, right? Huge oversimplification, we have to recognize that. But like part of the difficulty is there was a breaking away 
and then a forming of new traditions because life involves tradition and a forming of dogma uh, that was separate and distinct. But there was a moment of real rupture, right? And even today, you see like the expansion of uh, like so many different like denominations of Christianity, right? Communal dimension is huge because that's a human reality of it. But it's no longer today do we actually see very many people that decide on church based on doctrinal stuff. It's usually the one that's like, what's the most helpful for me? And what's kind of like the best vibe? That's almost what people, actually it's more like, I don't want to be reductive, but it's like, what's the one that helps me the most? The doctrinal stuff people are actually like less interested in nowadays. So, but we have to recognize like, yes, there is the huge communal dimension, but there was a, a very real breaking off that happened. And because of that breaking off, there hasn't been this one development, but actually a series of breaking offs and a series of struggles over doctrine that were already actually answered a long time ago. I gave the example of the iconoclast controversy, but there are uh, Christian communities that are arguing about that today that don't know about the fourth century bishops talking about it. That's a rupture, a rupture of memory, right? And so this isn't meant to like bag on Protestants in any way, but to point out what if there actually is something missing today through no fault of their own, right? But that it actually lacks like memory and this fullness of unity. What if things could actually be deeper if we were united, right? And not a unity of our making, but a unity of receiving something. Yeah. And also like the, and you would say the physical, the physical connection, like the laying, on, the laying of hands. Yeah is essential to, to like not have a rupture either. Yeah. So like if for some, for the sake of argument, you know, if like all the priests died and there was no like way to pass off like the hand, laying of hands, would that, 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 that would be it. That would be it. But this is the risk, right? Peter, you are a rock and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so far it hasn't, right? And dealt with all kinds of stuff throughout church history right? All kinds of stuff, right? So much like corruption, complexity, dealing with other cultures, the relationship between church and state, dealt all of it, right? And yet somehow mysteriously is, is like still here. But the problem is not the like, and I, I, I need to make this mis- distinction more clear. It's not the fruit of our effort. It's a gift that you receive that bears something deeper, right? My Protestant friends, honestly, are better people than I am on like a moral level. They're just better people. It's like a fact, you know? But like I recognize the difference of like I've received the depth of this beautiful thing, like not through my like effort, right? So it's not a question of like who is like doing the greatest as far as like moral adherence. A lot of Protestants, a lot of like, you know, uh, purely secular people, like like stoic people that are living like morally upright lives. That's not what we talk about with the religious sense, even though that includes it. We're talking depth, right? Adherence to the mystery. That's. And like I like the the place where I like encountered Christ in the Eucharist was through a priest that I like 
didn't like, didn't trust. I thought he was in it for the money, which is a weird thing to say because we don't make very much money. Uh, but like that day, for whatever reason, like it was like, oh, it's a you. Like you're here. And it happened through his like imperfect humanity, right? But like the thing is, is like, is there, is, is there this like deeper reality? And the ones who are adhering it, do you see this fruit that's born? Is there gold in the mud? Yeah. But like, the, it's not a risk to just be open, you know? Like, the fear is like going awry, but the question is like, are we guided by the Holy Spirit or not, right? And do we have like these things? We have to recognize human fragility and that we tend to follow ourselves more than honestly God, but that's why there are these like objective things that help us, right? So the question is like, is there one that is guiding me and loving me or not? That, at the end of the day, is the question. Uh, if so, like, let's see where he leads. And we use our reason and our heart and, like, these friendships. There's a ton more to be said, but this was just meant to be an introduction. Thanks for your, like, patience. Like, we're way past time. Um, hopefully we're going to do this again in the future. Uh, yeah. Thanks, guys. 